Do you know how to enjoy your own company and be truly alone? In this episode, I chat with Rebecca Iliff about her new book, Champagne for One, and how you can enjoy solitude, what you can get out of it, and why you should ditch the shoulds and artificial timelines and enjoy your life. The Mental Health and Wealth Show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Welcome to the Mental Health and Wealth Show podcast. This is your host, Melanie Lockhart. My journey with money and mental health started in 2012 when I was depressed and anxious about my student loan debt. In 2013, I started my blog, Dear Debt, which chronicled my debt payoff journey and changed my life. I later published my book of the same name about how I paid off $81,000 in student loan debt. It was my time blogging that showed me that I wasn't alone in my mental health struggles around money and that my own mental health impacted how I related to money. My mission now is to help others feel less alone and tackle these difficult topics. As a disclaimer, I am not a mental health professional or a financial professional, and all content on the show should not be considered professional medical or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. If you are in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741741. Thank you so much for being here, and if you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe and review on your favorite podcast platform, and feel free to share episodes on social media and tag me at Melanie Lockhart. I would love to hear from you. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, I'm interviewing my friend, Rebecca Iliff, a writer, author, and entrepreneur based in Nashville, Tennessee. Her work has appeared in Inc., Entrepreneur, Mashable, Forbes, Business Insider, New York Times, HuffPost Comedy, and countless other publications. Her new book, Champagne for One, A Celebration of Solitude, is now on pre-order and will be released in the U.S. on February 8th, 2022. And that's what she is here to talk about today. And I'm so excited to chat about this book because I think it is fun and funny and amazing. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Melanie. This is such a treat. And like, you know, I adore you and your writing and I'm just so grateful for you for having me on the show. So I'm excited to have this conversation. Ah, Me too. Thank you so much for context and for listeners. Rebecca and I have worked together on a professional level through her company, Right Vest. And we have been colleagues for the past several years. And she shared with me her beautiful book, Champagne for One, which I devoured a couple of weekends ago in the bathtub and it was just so fun and such a sense of joy and and playfulness and I loved it and I'm so excited to share more about the book with our listeners because I think it's really important. So, you know, your new book, Champagne for One, is all about embracing solitude with fun, compassion, grace, and humor. Why is learning how to love solitude so important, especially right now? So I think that there's this cultural narrative and a lot of the conversations we have or, or things that get thrown at us is about being in relationship, you know, connecting, whether romantically via social media, just, you know, connect, connect, connect. Um, we're always supposed to be on and we're always supposed to be wanting relationships in some way, shape or form. And that's, you know, obviously valid and true, but this idea of being alone and knowing how to live with ourselves is not something that people talk about, but it's such a vital part of being a human. And really, 
if you think about it, we probably spend half of our lives alone on some level, but I don't think we do it very well, particularly in Western cultures. It's not something that is placed kind of on the hierarchy of priorities or values. So really when it comes down to it, it's, you know, learning to live with ourselves is the most important way to be in relationships with others in a healthy way, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's so important to learn how to be alone and to practice loving solitude. And, you know, I think right now, given the pandemic, like we've all been forced into solitude in some way, shape or form. And a lot of it is uncomfortable. A lot of it is difficult. And, you know, you're right. There's always this pressure to connect with either a relationship, your friendships, you know, performing on social media. But how can we get back to that kind of solitude of being alone and acceptance? And there's that quote that we are born alone and we die alone. And I remember when I first read that quote many years ago, it really shook me to my core and I felt so sad by that quote. And then now as I get older and I've been through heartache and recovering from various issues, I find solace in that quote because it's like, yeah, that's that's true. Like we do die alone and we are born alone. And if we can learn how to love ourselves and be alone, that is the greatest work that we, we can do. Yeah. And like I was saying before, I think that the culture at large does not value this concept of solitude. And solitude is reserved for wallflowers, antisocialites, weirdos, thinkers, academics, writers, creators, which is all true. But really anyone living on planet Earth, whether you're a busy mom or a dad who's helping with Little League or someone in college or, or a kid, this idea that, you know, I guess to cultivate the ability to be alone is really important. I have such a funny memory of my youngest brother who I mentioned in the book in Conversation Enders. He was just so ahead of his years in terms of just the way he was. I mean, he was like, we always joke that he was 90 years old with a monocle when he came out. You know, <laughs> He was like sitting in a leather chair smoking a pipe. Um, but when he was little, he at like six and seven, he would ask my mom, I, I need to go take a bath because I just want to relax and think. I mean, at, at seven. Wow. And so, and this kind of, I don't know if you remember that part of the book, but I, do. I, I was love talking that. about, I would drive him around in my mom's minivan because he was 12 years younger than I was. And he would sit in the way back and I would be asking him all these questions. And he's like, can you just stop talking so I can think? You know, so it's, again, he was a kid. And then as you get older, it's just, you get into this kind of pattern and routine of relationship and friendship and romantic and all of that is fine and good, but we somehow start to kind of lose ourselves and lose alone time and spare moments and solitude as, you know, as much of a priority as being in relationships with others and connecting with others. Yeah. I love that. And, you know, there's so much pressure to get married, to have kids, to reach these different milestones. And so, you know, a big part of your book was you mentioning this journey into solitude was partly because you were approaching your 39th birthday alone. And, 
you know, I'm curious, what is your advice for people to let go of these artificial timelines about marriage and kids? Or if there's someone like me that's taking a non-traditional path where I personally have zero interest in marriage or kids as a concept and Mm-hmm. I have to deal with that, you know, from a cultural baggage standpoint. Like, what's your advice for people who either maybe they they are interested in marriage or kids, but it's not happening on their timeline or, you know, society's timeline, or for people like me who that's not something that I'm interested in and I have to be okay with that? Well, the first thing I'd say is that anytime you insert the word milestone into something, in your personal life or something that's out of your control, it's just a fool's errand. You know, milestones are meant for project management and business and things (laughs) you can control. So this idea that we can control when we meet the one, when we get married, when we have children is just completely ludicrous. I mean, it just, so the first thing I'd say is just accept that. Um, The second thing you said that really stuck out is this word artificial and they are artificial timelines. I mean, who says that you have to do X, Y, or Z on X, Y, and Z timeline. I mean, I firmly believe that families are important. So let me just put that out there. I believe that family is a very important social structure. And I think that we do much better, whether it's you have just a spouse or like for me, a spouse and a dog right now, we don't have any children yet. But this idea that families are the social fabric is very important. The second part of that is that families look very different. They can look you know, there's blended families, there's obviously now, you know, gay marriage, and lots of different ways to be in families. And so this idea, this kind of outdated mode, that you have to be married by 25, and three kids by the age of 30, people do that. And that's fine. But that's one of 100 ways. So the first thing is kind of reframing that and going, you know, you can want to be in a relationship, you can want to be married and even have children. But it's really not in our control. Um, I think the other point I would make is, you know, quote comes to mind by the very knowledgeable philosophical world's most uh, revered man, Dr. Phil, (laughs) 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 who who says, you know, I'm like, no, I'm not quoting Voltaire right now. Um, But he says this thing, do you want to be right? Or do you want to be happy? And it's the same with anything. It's like, okay, well, I didn't, this didn't have like for me, I mean, I didn't get married till I was 40. Was that the most ideal choice for me? Well, in retrospect, yes, because I love my husband and I think we have a great life. But if you had asked me that in my early 30s, I would have said no. I would have said I wanted something else. But, you know, once you kind of learn to accept things and to be grateful for your health and your friends and your family and all these other aspects, it's it's one aspect of your life. You know, being in a relationship is just one aspect of it. So, I think that's, I don't know, I try to not give advice because I feel like uh, it's, again, kind of a fool's errand and don't, don't, listen, don't listen to me, just do whatever you want. But in my experience, it is that, you know, figure out your own path, figure out what makes you happy, figure out what brings you joy, and then do that. Because who wants to be in a bad relationship or not be able to do what you want to do because you've been forced into a decision? So I think that's an important distinction. I think that's so important that we evaluate where these timelines are coming from and also actively reject them if they're not serving us. Because 
I know so many people who think because they have not been married or have children yet by 30, that they're expired, that they are done, that their life path is over, that it's not going to happen for them. And I have friends who have gotten married at 41. I've had friends who have had children at 38, 39. I've had people like me and other people you know, friends of mine who have decided to opt out of the marriage and children thing, because that's not a role that I identify with. And also, I think it's really important to evaluate where these cultural constructs are coming from, if they're not serving you, if they're serving you, great. But if you feel tortured by them, or like, they're imposed on you, think where did this come from? And I think about my family. So My family is originally from Michigan, and they moved out to California before I was born. And subsequently, I had a very different life than my um, cousins. A lot of my cousins, you know, put family first. They had marriages and kids in their early 20s. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that was definitely kind of like more of like a Midwestern values and lifestyle choice, whereas Growing up in California, that's just not something I really saw, something that I never really entertained, I wasn't interested in. And I think depending on geographical location, depending on your generation, depending on your age, depending on so many things. Well, like pers- have- personality. I mean, yeah, and your a personality, lot of it, it's yeah. so nuanced. We're not, you know, we're not black and white. We're we're complex beings and you know, I grew up in the Midwest as well. I was born in the South and I was grew up in the Midwest. And, and so I, I completely understand that value system. And I actually truly value it, meaning I, I think it is important. And I think that we need that structure. And then I think also on the flip side of that, we are free to choose. I mean, that we live in a, in a country, you know, God bless, knock on wood, that we do have the freedom to choose who we want to be with, to choose the path. And if we don't live in an environment, like, you know, if you're living in a city that you feel doesn't, you know, if you, if you have the ability to leave, you can go find another community that is more embracing of your choices. And so I think all of that is really wonderful. And I think we need all of it. And the great thing about the generation, if you want to use that, that we're living in now is that it is a lot more accepting mm-hmm. of different choices, although it still is a choice. It's a choice, you know? Um, and I think we need all of it. We need to be able to be open and then be able to choose our path and stand by it as long as we're, you know, being loving and kind and not hurting other people. I think that that's ours to, ours to make. And I think I was going to say in terms of your friends getting married and having kids at 30, um, I remember, and I don't know, maybe this has happened to you, but around my mid thirties, I remember there was a lot of questioning about whether I was going to freeze my eggs. And I was mm-hmm. like, why are you asking me so many times about my eggs? Like, why do you care so much? about? <laughs> like, that's really personal. You know, like, yeah, you know, I didn't even know you and you're asking me about my eggs. Like, do you want to pay for it? So I think that's another thing is just now it's comical, right? In retrospect, and it's such great material, you know, for writing to, to deal with that. But as a female, you know, you just, you have to deal, I think from like 32 to 40 and then people just kind of give up on you, you know, <laughs> yeah. watch, I'll have a kid. Like, like okay. Yeah. I'll have a kid at like 62. My husband will be 72. It's, we're going to be in wheelchairs, you know, like 
carting around our kid in a car seat in our lap. But um, yeah, it's a, that's just, everyone wants to know, oh, well, do you want to get married? Do you want, of course, do you want to have a kid? Well, yeah, that'd be great. But it's just, it's kind of like, they don't understand it. And so I think most of the time it's just coming from a place of, they don't really, you know, they don't really get it. And that's fine. There's so many good points there in relation to like, we all have the choice, you know, whether to freeze our eggs or to not freeze our eggs, whether to get married, whether to not get married, whether to have children, to not have children, whether we consider our family, our cats or our plants or whatever. And right, right. I also just want to say that whatever choice you make or whatever choice someone else makes is not an affront on your choice. I see right. this so often when I tell people that I don't really care for marriage or children. That is absolutely not a judgment on anyone who is married or who wants to get married or who has kids or wants to have kids. Not at all whatsoever. I think that's amazing. If if you know that that's what you want, I'm all for it. I just feel comfortable in the fact that I know that that's not something that I really care for. And so I think that's also a really important part of the equation because I think, you know, when people start being vocal about their choices that may be non-traditional, people feel kind of like, but wait, why don't you want to do what everyone else is doing? Like, is that an affront on my choice? Are you judging my choice? And it's like, no, absolutely not. Like, I think we're all able to, you know, accept our choices and what we want and what we don't want. And we should have the agency to to do that. Yeah, I mean, hashtag my body, my choice. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, like, right. It goes for everything, right? Like you can't you either have it or you either have choice or you don't have choice. You can't pick and choose where you're going to give people choice. It's not the way that it works. I think the other thing that you're getting at, which is super important, is what is happening now is very indicative of this kind of cultural shift that's happening where I think people are extremely selfish and self-involved and everything that is not about them and that doesn't fall within their identity. You know, we talk about this a lot, but like you're saying, it's somehow offensive to them. And it's like, this has nothing to do with you. Like, why are you making this about yourself? And I just going back to this idea of, you know, being alone and in solitude, it's the same thing. It's like, I'm choosing to be alone and to be by myself not because I don't like you, but because I just need it. It isn't, it's not personal to the other person. And I do think in a very strange turn of events, we have become a culture that wants everyone to be like us, yet we still want to be unique. It's very strange. It's like a lot of cognitive dissonance going on. It's like, be exactly like me, but let me be me. It's like, well, what do you, which one do you want? Because we can't have both, you know? So Mm -hmm. that's a very just you know, kind of going off topic a little bit, but it all circles back to this concept of we all kind of need all of it. And so then we have to let other people dictate the choices. And then as a result, deal with the consequences of their choice. The consequence of not having children is that, you know, number one, you don't have anyone to take care of you when you're old and that sucks. Okay. So like your cat and my dog are not going to be like, you know, taking us to the hospital when we have a broken toe when we're 85. That's not <laughs> yeah. going to happen. But the other side of it is, and I have a lot of kids in my life, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure you have relationships with your friends' kids and your cousins' kids. Um, just just pretend that you do if you don't. <laughs> like, you know, it, there's a lot of freedom and there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, we, you know, my husband and I can be very generous with our nieces and nephews and with our friends' kids and we have time and we can, 
you know, we can do other things. And so it is all just, as long as you're willing to take responsibility and accept that what's on the other side of that choice. And I think everyone should just decide to do what they want to do and then, and then be okay with it. Um, but yeah, okay. That's, well, that's my rant about freedom and being alone, <laughs> and not having children and having cats and dogs. And by the way, my, I, I'm not saying I don't want kids. It's just at this point, it may not be in a traditional sense. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And which is fine too. You know, it sounds like you're open to whatever is going to happen or not happen. And you're seeing where it goes. And I think that's also perfectly valid and acceptable and good for your mental health. And I think it's super important that we realize that every choice has a benefit and also a cost. So obviously having having children, you know, has many benefits and also many costs. And so does, you know, being child-free, like every choice. And you have to evaluate that and understand, am I okay with the cost of this? If not, what is the other choice? And, and evaluate that. And something that I just wanted to reference that you mentioned was about how we tend to be very selfish and think things are about us. And mm-hmm. I always think that, you know, we are the lead character in the movie of our lives. And we kind of act that way, which that's normal and makes sense. But something that's helped me with my mental health is like, I tend to get paranoid or anxious. Like if I didn't hear back from someone or if they were kind of dry and not overly friendly and I start making up stuff in my head. And then (laughs) what helps me actually is to be like, Melanie, it's really not all about you. They're probably not even thinking about you. They just stub their toe or they're having a bad day. And you know, they they're reading a book in a corner by themselves. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so it's actually quite a liberating thought. Yeah. I'm just like a nobody, so it's it's really <laughs> I'm the supporting okay. actor. I'm the yeah. I'm the corps de ballet. I'm the D-list celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> You're at least C, Mel. Okay, C plus. C plus. <laughs> C plus. Yeah. So um your book is, you know, full of humor and fun stories, but it was also a way to process grief around the loss of your best friend. And, you know, on the Mental Health and Wealth Show, we've talked a lot about grief as it relates to losing a spouse or losing a parent, but not a best friend. And so I'm curious to hear your perspective on how you think losing a friend is different and also how did it impact you? I've been very fortunate in that the only people that I've lost um, that were close to me uh, before Katie died were my grandparents. And so I never experienced profound loss, you know, of a parent or a sibling or a close friend. And so I think what was so difficult to comprehend was, you know, when you've known someone for whatever, 35 years, they know a lot about you. They, friends know things that parents don't know, that siblings don't know that teachers don't, I mean, it's, it's like this vault of information and secrets to be, to be fair, yeah. you know, things you did when you were 14 that you didn't want anyone to know you did, <laughs> yeah. like getting pulled over by a cop and with booze in the back um, <laughs> and then talking yourself out of it. I really hope my mom isn't listening to this, but that never <laughs> happened. I'm just making it up. For um, example. For, for an example. Um, so that all of a sudden it's like, that's just gone. And, and part of that, and I do believe on a somewhat of a spiritual and energetic level, your closest friends are your soulmates in a certain sense. So when they're physically gone, it's like someone just wiped all those memories away. And so that was the most difficult 
thing for me, obviously just missing her and not being able to call or pick up the phone, but it's all of a sudden, all these memories that you had, you don't have anyone to share them with. And then you're like, wait, who, who do I need to tell this to so that someone else has this? It was very strange, but you know, obviously any sort of traumatic or not even a traumatic death, but any sort of loss is very difficult in its own unique way. And, and I think with a best friend, that's probably, and I've talked to quite a few other people, um, both Katie's other really close friends and, you know, other people who've had that kind of a loss and, and they all kind of say the same thing. They're like, what, I want to pick up the phone and call and share that story and it's just not there anymore. Paying off debt can have a huge impact on your money and your mental health. If you're trying to pay off debt right now, you can check out my book, Dear Debt, and figure out how I paid off $81,000 in student loan debt. You can purchase it on Amazon or request it at your local library. You can also pay what you want for my How to Pay Off Debt workshop slides at deardebt.com forward slash shop. Yeah, I can imagine that is so hard. And, you know, our best friends, like in some cases, they are our family. They are closer than family. And they are the people that we can tell anything to. And and they're our chosen family. And I know my best friend, like I've told her everything. I feel like she is someone that loves me unconditionally and I can tell her anything. And we've gotten into shenanigans. Yeah, We, We have stories, you know. And she's gotten me out of grief and loss and and other things. And, you know, we take that for granted because we kind of think of best friends, like as the movie of our lives is like the supporting character. But in in many ways, they are also the main characters in our our lives and our, our movies of our lives. And that loss is tremendous. And I think it would really behoove us to create a space in the world where we can honor that loss of friendship, either through death or also I've had situations, you know, in friend breakups where they don't work out or there's like something that happens where it's like someone cuts you off or they're no longer part of your life. And and that's painful as well. And I think, you know, if we can create an environment where we can talk about these things, I think it'll be better for everyone. I do think talking about it certainly helps. I also believe I have come to believe uh, even more so that ritual is very important. So being able to commune with, and I'm not saying like talking to the dead necessarily, but in a way being able to commune and process that in a, in kind of a ritualistic way, this is another thing that Western culture does very poorly. And there's some movement starting around that kind of this like death positive movement. You know, when someone passes away, it's like all of a sudden they're gone and we don't want to talk about it and no one's supposed to know the information. And it's just like, what is that about? That's just, it's that emotional cutoff that they talk about in psychology, that's actually very detrimental to people, you know, it's just cutting off relationships and moving on with no sort of closure. And I think the thing that was so difficult through that process was figuring out, okay, how do I, and, and this is part of, was really like the genesis of the book was how do I embody her so that she lives on? And there's so many elements of um, champagne for one, you know, Katie really inspired this because she was such a celebrator of life and always found joy. You know, she was a single mom. She had recently been divorced right before she passed away, but she just managed to find joy in these small moments. And so, okay, how do I carry that forward? 
how do I do this in a way that's honoring? And I, I just, I think as a culture, we're very immature with, with loss and with letting go of someone, whether they are, have passed away, whether they're no longer in our life and there's just a graceful way to do it. And so anyway, maybe we can, we can figure out how to, or encourage people to do that a little bit more gracefully. But that was like you're saying, I mean, I think it's, it's just not something that we're accustomed to or that we've learned how to do very well. Cause no one wants to talk about it. It's like, who wants to be like, Oh, by the way, Jenny, um, when you die, like yeah. when you're 25, I mean, no one talk, you just want to pretend that it doesn't happen. Just like you want to pretend that divorce and all the other, you know, joblessness and all that other thing, all those other things don't happen. And because they're difficult conversations, we don't, we just pretend that they're not, that they're not there. And I think that's unfortunate. Yeah, it is unfortunate. And, you know, one thing with the pandemic is, you know, death and disease are in our face every single day. And I think that's been difficult, but also good in a way in the sense that our mortality is in our face every single day now. Whereas before I was kind of like, la la la, not going to think about that. I'll die one day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I love what you said about creating rituals in communion and also honoring that person. And I've mentioned this on the show before, but I think Central American and Latin American cultures do this really well with Dia de los Muertos, where they honor the dead and they have, you know, these rituals of celebrating their life. So instead of, you know, being grief stricken and and silent and kind of this very private, alone mourning, they have this very public, collective celebration of someone's life. And I think it's a much healthier way to process that kind of loss. And I think we can all learn a bit from that because, here it is very private and alone and that doesn't help anybody. Yeah. And the Native American culture is, they have some really interesting rituals as well. And I think that is part of our DNA. I think the way that we do it now is very puritanical and sterile. And that's, (laughs) that's, that's a lot of, you know, this kind of influence that, that came over and wiped away a lot of these very natural American, the Native American culture and the way that they did things because of Western religion. And this is a whole nother conversation. And and again, I'm not saying any of it's bad, it's just different. And, And so when you sterilize something and you make it very traditional and rigid, then you lose really the essence and the soul of how it's meant to be. It, again, this is just my opinion, and we probably will take this discussion offline, but <laughs> I am very interested in, in the topic because I I believe that there needs to be different ways and people need to be open to it and need to know that there's all these other ways of doing it um, that exist if you, if you so choose. Yes. So, so, so important and definitely look forward to chatting with you more about that. (laughs) So switching gears a little bit. So I know Valentine's Day is coming up, which can be either an exciting or a terrifying time, depending on where you're at in your life. So for people who may be single or they're in an it's complicated situation, how can they date themselves or, you know, kind of be okay and manage during the Valentine's Day season when we see all of these teddy bears and chocolates and posts and it can be very overwhelming and isolating and sometimes triggering. Yeah, well, don't go to Walgreens <laughs> after January, January 1st because it's all Valentine's Day all the time. Um, yeah, I, I think putting away your phones is certainly 
uh, one, if you have, you know, I, I don't know about you. I've never really cared one way or the other at Valentine's day when I'm single, it's more like when I'm in a relationship and I'm like, um, excuse me, where's the big plan? You know, <laughs> yeah. but, um, yeah, I think just if you're single and, or you're, you know, dating and not really hooked on anyone, uh, in a long-term committed relationship, I think just finding an activity that you really love to do and, and just going and doing it and not overthinking it and, or just ignoring the Valentine's day if it exists. I mean, that's another good one. Or if you have girlfriends, you know, Valentine's day is on February 13th. So that's always kind of fun. Now I think there's like Palentine's day. I mean, we have to include everyone, right? So I don't know why there's not a day for singles around this time. Maybe we'll just make that up. We'll make the champagne for one will be the new the new holiday. Oh, I love that. Yes. <laughs> nothing, nothing rhymes with Valentine's day. That's right. That's like that you could insert the other letter for. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we'd have, we'd have to think of something creative, but um, yeah, I think it's just, if you want to celebrate it, put away your phone and then just go do something in nature or something that you love to do. Yeah. I think that's so important, you know, figure out how to love yourself. Well, like, right. You know, I just finished All About Love by Bell Hooks, which was such an incredible, informative read. And she mentions, you know, having this longing, this desire, this hope of how a partner would treat you in a relationship. And, you know, while we're waiting and hoping for that to hopefully happen one day, why not turn the tables back on ourselves and say, how can I give that to myself? And I know it might not be as fun, it might not be as spontaneous, but I think kind of the point of your book, if we can do that for ourselves, it just makes everything better and creates such a solid foundation for when we do end up in a relationship eventually. Well, we can't give what we don't have. And so if you don't know how to show loving kindness and patience and generosity and forgiveness to yourself, you sure as hell aren't going to be able to do it for a partner. You know, so I think the sooner you figure that out and and you prioritize it, then you just become better when that person does show up. And you just have your, I don't want to say your standards are, but it, it is like your standards are just higher because you're like, I, I wouldn't treat myself that way. Why are you treating me like that? Mm-hmm. So then you kind of have a benchmark, so to speak, of where to, where to jump off from or like what you're looking at in terms of... Um, you know, what you're going to tolerate. I, I did a interview a few weeks ago in LA, another podcast interview, and the host was, she's in her mid twenties. And so we were doing a lot of like, she was asking me a lot of relationship advice, um, which I think is bad. Like, I'm, just, I'm not the person <laughs> doing this to you, but, but I remember I was telling her, you know, when I was in my thirties and I was, I found myself single again after a seven year relationship. And I really love to ride horses. It's like one of my favorite activities. And I remember if I would go on a first date with someone, if I thought at any point in the conversation that I'd rather just be riding a horse, I was like, all right, check, please. You know, this is, that was like, that was a benchmark for me because it was something that I would do that I love to do that made me feel so happy and free and connected. And, and so it sounds really stupid, but it's so important to have those little reminders of not that this person's bad and I need to be rude and, you know, like get up in the middle of the conversation, but it's like, okay, I I now kind of understand where this is going to go. And it's going absolutely nowhere because I'm going to leave and go to the barn, you know? So that's, I think those are important metrics to have, or just, you know, little reminders in the back of your head. 
Yeah, and actually that's the loving, mature thing to do for yourself and for other people. Like if you know that this is not going to work out, it's not what you want, then set that other person free too and do what makes you happy. And you guys both have a chance at happiness. I agree 100%. So I love the section of your book called Solitary Refinement. It was very fun. And, you know, finding places to go to enjoy solitude, such as the movies, museums, the library, or for a long drive. It reminds me of my personal project, The Year of Museums. So just for some quick context, you know, a few years ago, I got out of a nine-year relationship and was so grief-stricken for over a year. And... I went on this one-year ban ban where I was like, I am not going to even talk to a man for a year because I just keep getting my heart broken and I need to heal and I need to figure out how to be alone. Kind of much, you know, of the concepts of your book, like how do I date myself? How do I enjoy my own company? And so I created this year of museums project where I went to a museum every week for a year. I didn't quite make it to the year. I made it to six months because then, you know, I got busy with work and then COVID ended up happening. But for six months, I went to a museum by myself every week. And it was so nice because I was like, why would I wait to date someone? Like, I can just do this on my own. It was so nice to be in the pleasure of my own company, to be walking leisurely in the museum and not feeling rushed by anyone, not having to explain, do you understand this artwork? What do you like about it? Just enjoying it for myself. And it was such a transformative time for me because I got into boxing during that time. I did this year of museums thing. I met a lot of new friends. I I did so much during that man band year because I was (laughs) dating myself and learning how to really cultivate a healthy relationship with myself. And I think that is what led me to the healthier relationship I'm in now. And so, you know, I'm curious, how do you think doing things alone can positively impact your mental health? I love that story. That's such a great, the museum's project. You need to like trademark that or something. Um, (laughs) That's brilliant. But going back to what we were talking about earlier, I think if you, you know, we have to live with ourselves. And so this idea that doing things that are acts of self-love you know, by extension are good for our mental health. And so when you choose yourself and, and not to mistake that for being selfish and just continually, Oh, I'm sorry. You know, I'm like, this is all about me. It's more just that balance. I think that, you know, there's probably zillions of studies that show going for long walks in nature or spending time reading a book, how that, that can be de-stressing and then by extension, it serves your mental health. Now, on the flip side of that, I do think there is a very fine line between isolation and solitude. And I think particularly now, kind of on the heels of the pandemic, or let's what hope what we are hoping is the heels of it, is this concept that there's a lot of people now who feel very isolated and disconnected because they haven't had enough interaction. And so there's a, like, to me, solitude is kind of this proactive choice and mm-hmm. a choice of self-love because we know that we need it. And isolation is we're either forced into it or we're doing it because we can't function. And so from a mental health standpoint, it's always good to be checking in to say, okay, am I isolating here? Am I, am I doing this because 
I can't function and because I can't handle people? Or am I doing this as an act of self-love and I'm choosing that? So I, I, I just want to make that distinction because, you know, I've had people ask me those questions. Well, we, we just went through a pandemic. Like, how can you be suggesting that people should want to be alone? And it's like, well, I can tell you about, you know, 10 mom friends of mine that can't wait for their alone time because they were <laughs> yeah. just in a house for two years with their children. So I, you know, I think it's important to, to kind of define the terms or to, to talk about how both of those things exist, you know, and can exist simultaneously. That is so important. I'm so glad you brought that up because yeah, there's a huge difference between solitude and isolation. And from a mental health standpoint, I think it is kind of a good benchmark for you to assess where you're at. Like for example, I know that I'm feeling more depressed and not myself if I start to self-isolate. Like if I start to withdraw, I don't really want to see people. I don't want to talk to people. I start to realize, oh, I'm not feeling like myself. So that's a good benchmark for Mm -hmm. me that, okay, my mental health is not okay. You know, the solitude is like, I'm going on walks by myself, listening to podcasts, listening to music. I'm taking baths and reading. I'm carving out space for myself instead of just giving myself to work, to partner, to friends, to family, you know, performing all of these roles, but actually just letting myself be. And you're right. There's a huge difference. Yeah. And I think there's also that like sometimes with the solitude stuff, it's, you're doing it really in a joyful way. Like, you know, you're going on a walk and you're very happy to be there. I also think sometimes with solitude, you're recharging. So that's a different type. You are doing it to reflect and to recharge because your batteries are drained. And so it, you know, just like anything else, it's on a spectrum. It's uh, this isn't black and white. It's not like, Oh, this, you know, being alone is always bad and being with people are always good or vice versa. It's just, you know, so, so you're right. You do always have to be kind of checking in. Where am I at? You know, am I just so drained that I need to be alone and I, you know, want to punch everyone in the face. So I'm going to go <laughs> to yeah. be by myself for a week or is it just, okay, I'm feeling really good today, but I know for my, for my maintenance and for part of my routine, I have to go on a daily walk. You know, there's all those different things that everyone's, everyone's kind of blueprint is different. So I think this, again, reinforces the fact that it is important to be self-aware, to be checking in, to be honest with yourself about where, I mean, the honesty part is so tough. It's so easy to just go, oh yeah, everything's fine, you know, and then two weeks later, we're crumbling on the floor. And so really getting radically honest about how we're, you know, how we're managing, how we're managing our lives, how we're managing our relationships, and certainly with ourselves as well. Yeah, so many important points. Thank you so much for sharing. So what I got out of the book is really this celebration of life. You know, there's no need to wait for certain milestones, events, or circumstances. We don't have to defer our joy. We can enjoy our own company now with our favorite sparkling beverage and do what we want. So how can people stop deferring their joy and have a little more fun now? Well, like anything else, and we have mentioned this several times already, it's a choice. You know, the joy is a, is a choice. This has been my experience. I believe this fundamentally. And you can find joy in difficult moments. And certainly, I think what you got out of it was exactly what I wanted. So that makes me happy that it's a celebration of life because this was in the face of a very traumatic death. I w- became very clear that there were parts of my life that I was just um, kind of like wasting. Like, why am I spending five seconds on that dumb person who's mean to me? Or, 
two hours doing stuff that I don't want to do that aren't fulfilling to me, it, life is to be celebrated. And we are so fortunate, my gosh, to live in a place in a developed country where we have education. I mean, all I it just, it almost was like so overwhelming to me. I just was, I was probably on my knees, you know, more hours than I was on my feet, just in gratitude, like looking at all of the things that we have and all of the things that I was taking for granted um, all the while thinking I was so spiritually connected and aware, you know, and it's mm-hmm. like, I, I only, now my brain is blown. Like now my mind is blown. Like this is a whole different level of understanding. And so, you know, the, the silver lining of grief, if you do it well, I would say, is that you learn all these lessons and then you can continue to apply them and you can continue to learn from them. And then just gratitude. I mean, I, I mean, the past two years have been extremely taxing on anyone, even the most, you know, spiritually present, like enlightened person. Mm-hmm. I was so grateful to have had this experience in 2017. I mean, I spent that whole year, um, I wasn't really working. I had just entered into this new relationship. I was spending a lot of time with my friend's daughter because her mother had just passed away. And I just had all this space and it's like, you know, so the, the last two years, I, I think for many people have been quite a gift because they've been thrown in to this situation where they're like, you know what, I'm going to choose, I'm going to get an RV with my family and go and travel around the country. And I'm going to do things because we just don't know. We just don't know what's around the corner. We have no idea. Yeah. And I think that's the one thing with grief and loss, you know, kind of, as you mentioned, is that when you have that happen so close to you, you really realize what you have and it's kind of a whole paradigm shift and you start seeing things in a different way and you know how precious things are because nothing is promised literally. And yeah, it gives, you know, a whole expansive universe to, to joy. And I love what you said about gratitude because I used to think gratitude was really woo woo and stupid. And then, you know, my therapist (laughs) suggested I do it. And then I did it for like a week and I felt a big difference. And I was like, okay, now I know why she suggested it. And as I started to continue my gratitude practice, and as I started to be like nerdy about the universe and watching this show on Amazon Prime called How the Universe Works, it has just like (laughs) totally expanded my mind. And when you get to that place of like really seeing where we're at in the universe and the world and how much gratitude we have to be alive, to be healthy, to be in this specific place and time and history and how much, you know, content, books, films, music, art, languages, so many things to do and learn and feel and love and care for. Like it's overwhelming. And I have actually been to that point where I have felt high off of gratitude and that is a beautiful place. <laughs> yeah. It's like, li- it's like living in awe, you know, yeah. of just it, and to be fair in the developed world and particularly in countries like we live in, we have no, we have no right to not be grateful. I mean, I'm sorry, but like we have it so good. And the people that think that there's all these problems. It's like, you know what, why don't you go live in a third world country? We are so fortunate. And so to me, that's the other part of it that where I think I get frustrated and where I still have those like moments of intolerance where it's like, how can you not see this? How can you not see how vast, how small we are in this vast world and how lucky we are 
to be in the, like anyone who's listening to this podcast is, is lucky. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's like, we are, we are in a enviable place. And so I wish like my one wish for all of this, like particularly with the book, it's like, just take a minute to step back and go, wow, I'm fortunate to be here. I'm fortunate to have a roof over my head. And it's so basic, but if you can live from that place and if you're making decisions and choices from that place, you're really just a happier person and there's just a lot more joy. And then you're also free to, to, I think, to be a lot more giving and generous with things because you're just, you're just grateful. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, we don't even need to compare ourselves to people in in other countries, like right here in my own backyard in Los Angeles. I mean, there are many people who are without homes and the homeless crisis is booming in many big cities on the West coast right now. Um, There's a wonderful documentary on Netflix that I recommend. Unfortunately, I forget the name, but hopefully I will put it in the show notes. That was so eye opening, And it's just Mm -hmm. like, wow. Yeah. Even in the U S like just even having a home instead of a cardboard box, having a warm blanket and heat, like, wow, I I feel grateful every day, you know, just for that, especially because those comforts, like we take them for granted, but I mean, I don't think anyone wants to try what it's like to, you know, sleep on cardboard with no blanket or a light blanket when it's 30 degrees out. Yeah, I I agree. I I would not want to be in that position. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) So is there anything else you'd like to share about the book? I think we covered it. I, I think that just, um, if you're listening and I'm doing a lot of virtual book club events, um, the book does launch February 8th, but because, you know, there's, there are events happening in different cities, but if you're in a book club and you want to do a virtual event, I'm open to that. And all of the details really for the book tour and other things are on champagneforone.com. So, you know, we can put that in the show notes too, but that's basically kind of the hub for, you know, the book tour, um, about the book kind of, I'm going to probably at some point kick off a blog too, just with kind of material that didn't make it into the book, you know, and suggestions for other books about this topic and just some other fun things and then support your local bookstore. So wherever you are, support local and here in Nashville, we have a great bookstore called Parnassus Books. Um, I'm doing a pre-order campaign with them and then Buxton books and village booksellers and all, all sorts of, all sorts of ones that are being supportive of me for the launch. So that's the little plug for independence. Amazon is great. You know, it's super convenient. I get it, but just give some love to the independence as well. Yes. Your money goes further there. So I can vouch for that. So if people wanted to connect with you, where can they find you? On Instagram, it's, my name's a little tricky to spell, but it's at Rebecca Iliff Weaver. So maybe you can put that in the show notes, but just go to champagneforone.com. It's like all the links are there at the bottom, the social links, my email, you can get in contact with me. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of trying to drive everyone there because it's just, it's easiest. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your story and your wonderful book. Congratulations again for bringing us into the world. Thank you so much, Melanie. I really appreciate it. And I had a great time. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Want more content and support? Sign up for the Mental Hump newsletter and get our free mental health and money inventory worksheet. You can sign up at mentalhealthandwealth.com and also check out our other blog posts and podcast episodes. 
Also, we host a mental health and wealth hangout every other Thursday over Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific to chat about all things money and mental health. If you'd like to support the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a review. And you can also support me at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.